You are Locked On Hornets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. In a minute, cuz, we live. We live. This is Locked On Hornets, your daily podcast on the Charlotte Hornets and the NBA. I'm Doug Branson. I cover the Charlotte Hornets for Fan Rag Sports, and I'm joined from the mean streets of Cotswold. He's been covering the Hornets for SB Nation since they were the Bobcats. The man, the myth, the legend, David Walker. Doug, that's so correct. I've been wrestling with this state of the Hornets season right now, and it had me thinking back to that ill-fated, horrible season of the Bobcats. We're not there yet, Doug, but we got to talk about our feelings and where we are right now. We're going to be doing that. Yeah, we're not there. We're past that. The nine wins, yeah. that's two more than 759. There we so, go. you know, and a lot of season left to play. So we're going to talk about uh, what happened this weekend, what it means uh, for the present and the future. Plus, we've got a great interview ahead with Paul Flannery, He's a senior NBA writer for SBNation.com. He wrote a great article on Steven Silas, the acting head coach right now. You're going to learn a lot more about him and his role and his philosophies and how he'll be uh, uh, captaining this ship going forward for the time being until Steve Clifford returns. Uh, and we have a listener question that I want to get to. Uh, plus, we will give you a few notes uh, on this OKC matchup tonight. This show is sponsored by our friends at Frame Warehouse. Visit framewarehouse.net today. They have the guaranteed best price on every framing project. Uh, plus, we've got t-shirts on sale on tpublic.com. Search for Locked On Hornets. Tpublic has a lot of great shirts for very affordable prices. Check them out, tpublic.com, and use the link in our show notes. Okay, David, Let's talk this out because uh, what happened over the weekend was very disappointing. I know for fans, frustrating, another word that we could use, and we've seen it all over our mentions. I think it's fair to say both you and I feel frustrated about what we're seeing right now. Before this four-game homestand, you and I were in agreement that the Hornets needed to walk away 3-1, and one. reasons being they've played better at home. They had winnable games against Orlando, Chicago, and Los Angeles, and they, they really needed the confidence as they looked at some tough opposition to close 2017. They needed to get this season kind of back in gear. Instead, they finished 1-3. and three. They wasted an opportunity to upset a wounded and disinterested Warriors team. Uh, they take another baffling loss to the Bulls in overtime. Then on Saturday night, they failed to do the one thing they needed to do to stop the Lakers, and that's get back into transition. So here we are, just under a third of the way through the season. The Hornets are 9-16, and 16, the third worst record in the Eastern Conference, the seventh worst record in the NBA, well below any of the most reasonable expectations people had for this team or that they had for themselves. David, I don't think it's really helpful to go back and dig too deep into either of these past two losses because I think the problems run deeper than one game or two games or one or two opponents. In your mind, what are the top reasons that the Hornets are where they are at this point? Well, this first of all, I think this is doubly concerning right now because every team goes through these stretches, right, Doug? Everything, every team has lulls in the season, but we're a quarter of the way through the season, and it feels like the Hornets Lull, have already lulls, had at least not two. Lulls, not lulls. There haven't been too Some many lulls. lulls. These are just lulls. <laughs> 
there have been lulls. <laughs> yeah, right. But you know what I mean? They've already done this once, right? And, and we thought maybe they would be able to bounce back with the help of a favorable homestand. And as you mentioned, they failed miserably in that effort as well. I mean, the biggest things to me are their inability to do anything down the stretch on either side of the floor, which is stop guys from getting to the rim at will, you know, get a stop when they need to. And then, I mean, the offensive execution is still a total disaster, even with the starters out there, even, you know, like against the Bulls, uh, they could not get a solid shot to go down and they couldn't hit anything. And then they really couldn't get stops when they needed to. Again, this is against the Chicago Bulls. Uh, this year's Chicago Bulls. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, that is certainly concerning. And the effort which was the, which with their playing, you mentioned the transition defense was a big thing against the Lakers. And Coach Silas mentioned that after the game. I mean, that's a Clifford thing, right? That's one of his pillars. And whether it's, it's because he's out, whether it's because, you know, they're just there's some fatigue here and frustration. Certainly there's that. But they're not doing the little things, and we talk about it all the time, the way this team is constructed. That's why Clifford puts such emphasis on these little things, the, the no turnovers, you know, the defensive rebounding, the getting back in transition, not giving up those points. If they don't do those things, there's, there's no hope. And, and right now we're pretty close. You mentioned how they're performing down the stretch in the fourth quarter of this season. They are dead last in offensive rating, dead last in effective field goal percentage, and 20th in assist-to-turnover ratio. Uh, the the second unit has a problem with, with scoring in general. And then we've seen some of these games when the starters do return and I either have a chance to extend a, a small lead or regain a lead, something happens in the offense where they're either too, maybe a little too dependent on Dwight Howard's post-offense. There's not a lot of movement, not a lot of ball movement at all. And, and the, the offense just sort of gets in the mud. We've seen that many times this season. I mean, you can't look at what's happened and not point to injuries, and not as an excuse, but as just a statement of fact. Uh, you know, they've obviously they're dealing with the injuries to Cody Zeller and Frank Kaminsky now. But earlier in the season, you had, you know, the Nick Batum injury. You had the MKG absence. Kimba's missed a couple of games. I think it's obvious Nick Batum came back too early. He said after the Hornets win last Monday that the pain in his elbow has been preventing him from taking more shots. He told Rick Bennell of the Charlotte Observer, uh, quote, I can't really do what I want, what I need to help this team win because my elbow is really bothering me, unquote. Also said that he can't play like himself. His numbers are down across the board and anyone that has watched him shoot, you, you, you have to look at that and go, that's not... That's not how I've seen Nick Batum shoot for the Charlotte Hornets. He had a little bit of an off year in terms of his efficiency last season, but this is way different. Uh, Everything is down to career lows at this point for him. Uh, Even his free throw percentage is four points down, and that's a good indicator. If if a good shooter is not shooting well from the line, sort of a good indicator of what's going on. The pain is just in-game. The contact that he has to take on the defensive end and, and on the offensive end is is affecting him and, and I don't know what you necessarily do about that other than, I don't know that that gets really gets that much better without him missing more significant time David yeah and I know people are frustrated by by Nick I mean everyone is looking to blame someone at this point I mean literally everyone from Michael Jordan down to you know Malik Monk or whomever you want to choose is getting a lot of blame this year and 
I think Batum is obviously going to be the first guy to to come in the crosshairs of that because of the contract, right, Doug? I mean, that's the big thing with Batum. Everybody looks to the money he was paid and the dips in performance, like you mentioned. I, I just do think he is still injured. He's not 100%. I think that's clear. It's it's affected their ability to shoot from outside. They're 25th in percentage, 24th in attempts. They also are really struggling to find two-way play. They've got rookies out there who are not ready for big minutes on a team that's trying to win basketball games but they have to play big minutes because of these injuries. They have a bunch of players on the second unit who give great effort on defense, but no one who can run the who you can run the offense through or who can command an offense and go get a bucket in the way that Jordan Clarkson was doing for the Lakers late in that game. They, the Hornets don't have anyone like that on the second unit. Yeah, we mentioned Batum, right? And and Batum and Lamb, I believe, were questionable for the, the Lakers game. They're both questionable for Monday's game against the Thunder tonight. I mean, these guys are trying to give that effort, right? Um, they're trying to get out there and help the team win. But it's clear by being listed as questionable and just some of their play that they, they keep getting uh, dinged up. And, and especially for Batum, I mean, it looks like I don't know how that gets solved even like over an extended all-star break or something, right? I mean, this seems like that's going to be lingering with him the rest of the way, which they're just going to have to figure that out. And you, you mentioned the shooting. I mean, that's where it's really killing them because because um, Lamb, as I mentioned, also questionable. He's a little bit nicked up um, and they're not getting any of the performances they did from the rookies early in the season. You know, we always talk about Monk, but Bacon has certainly not played like he did the, uh, the first couple weeks of the season. Those minutes are always going to fluctuate. So it's just a, a lot of disarray. I did want to ask you about Dwight Howard, Doug, because you mentioned him early. And they see success, especially early in the game, I think, last week, going through him. Some things were <clears throat> able to happen, excuse me. But towards the end of the game, it grinds down to a halt, right? I mean, it, it, it's they're keying on getting him the ball. But like in those late-game situations, if he throws up a shot, he, he he's not there for the rebound. And, and, and more often than not, it's difficult for him to get a good look deep into the fourth quarter, deep in the paint like he does early on in the game. Yeah, his putback his putback offense is certainly more effective than his traditional post offense, and 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 I think you're dead on that. Early in the game, he's getting better looks. The ball movement is better early than it is late. And I think there's a real issue with Kimball Walker being able to effectively get uh, Dwight Howard the ball in positions that he wants to have it in. And late in the late in the game, the ball's going to be in Kimball Walker's hands. He's going to initiate yeah. that offense, and I, I think. They've they're still working on figuring out what the best way is to to use Dwight Howard offensively, and you know it's it's affecting them uh, certainly late in games. Uh, David, the Hornets have a lot to figure out. One thing that we don't have to figure out is where we go to get our uh, wall art framed, and that's, of course, at our friends at Frame Warehouse. I don't know if you know this, but this is the absolute best time of the year to get something framed. We are coming down the stretch of the holiday season. You've got home decorations, maybe something for your bonus room. Get it framed now is the time and get it done right with Frame Warehouse. We're proud to partner up with Frame Warehouse because they've been family owned right here in the heart of Charlotte for over 35 years. They have the guaranteed best price on every framing project. You can frame almost anything for next to nothing at Frame Warehouse. If you can think of it, you can get it framed. Sports memorabilia, posters for your office, maybe your kid's bedroom, jerseys. They'll even cube up that Frank Reich signed Panthers helmet you always tell people about, and I know that you're telling people about it. The best part is the Frame Warehouse makes the whole process easy 
And I don't know about you, David, but I need easy. Frame Warehouse has framing experts that will walk you through the entire process step-by-step and turn your project around quickly for an amazing price. Don't let your prized possessions go undisplayed. Talk to our friends at Frame Warehouse at one of their six locations in Charlotte. Go to framewarehouse.net to find the one nearest you and tell them Locked On Hornets told you to drop by and give them a Go Hornets, Go America, Let's Swarm Charlotte. This is Locked On Hornets. Our boys got to go Cobra Kai. We got to go 80s villain defense. Grow a goatee. Do the uh, gladiator stab them real quick in the ribs before the game. Have an Eastern European accent. Only on the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Joined now by Paul Flannery, senior NBA writer for SBNation.com. His article, A Day with Hornets Assistant Coach and NBA Lifer, Stephen Silas, you can read right now on SBNation.com. Welcome in, Paul. Hey, Doug. How's it going, man? It's good. Uh, I love this article. I love this uh, the premise of it. You basically hung out with Stephen Silas for an entire day through his game preparations uh, with Boston, and now... Your article takes on some added significance with the news that Silas is taking over as acting head coach with the absence of Steve Clifford due to health issues. Based on everything that you learned about him in that day, what did you think when you first heard the news that he'd have a chance to head coach this ball club? Well, I mean, let me just back up a little bit. Um, you know, Steve Clifford, uh, it, when that news broke, it was interesting that a lot of the NBA media uh, immediately went to say that how great a person Steve Clifford is mm-hmm. and what a great coach he is. And I would echo those sentiments as well. He's been tremendous with me over the last few years since he got the job. And he's obviously a fantastic coach. So, you know, just best wishes to, to him and his family right now. Um, you know, look, Steven is prepared for this. He's ready for this. Uh I have no doubt he can step in and do, he was doing a lot of things anyway, which was, which was an interesting part of the, of the story. Cliff is such a detailed guy, but he has gradually turned over more and more of the operation to Steven basically because like, you know, at some point you have to, you have to give up some things. And so Steven, you know, runs practices sometimes he runs shoot around sometimes he does a lot of scouting reports and you know, he also, I mean, he does, he does, um, substitutions during a game. So I don't think there's that much of an adjustment. It's not like they're going to go out and start playing like, you know, UNLV trapping defense or anything like that. They're going to keep doing what they're doing. And he's been a consistent voice with them for, you know, five years now. So I think, you know, he's ready for it. I, I, you know, I, I just, I wonder if the, if the, you know, the results may not look all that great. And that could have to do with a lot of things that are outside of of Steven Silas's control. Uh, My experience with him so far is that he's been very open with information. He's very willing to share, doesn't try to uh, simplify maybe is is the right word or, or assume you won't understand something. He just talks basketball. Was that your experience with him? Yeah, I mean, he's been this is not mystical to him, you know, and like some coaches try to make this out to be like it's, you know. Like you would never understand our complex. <laughs> I mean, like Steven's right. been around the NBA since the day he was born, which is part of the story. Um, you know, obviously everybody, if you know about Steven Silas, you probably know he's Paul Silas, son, who was a great player for a long time. And was also was coach in Charlotte. But you know, when Steven was born, Paul was still playing for the Celtics. And then he followed him around to Seattle. And then he followed him. Paul got his first head coaching job with the, with the San Diego Clippers. I believe they were at the time. That's how long ago it was. He followed around to New York, New Jersey. He's been around the NBA his entire life. And so none of this is 
like cool or big or in, you know, um, yeah. overwhelming to him. The, the, the celebrity and the trapping of the NBA is like, I mean, this is just the guy's life. So he's, you know, he, I, 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 I'm not surprised that he's, he's taken that tact with you guys uh, because that's pretty much who he is. He's, he's very comfortable with who he is. Let's put it that way. Yeah, you mentioned his father there, Paul Silas. You write in the article, while born to a great player, Stephen has always considered himself the son of a coach. Uh, how has uh, Paul's influence on him sort of affected his life and development as a coach, do you think? Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, you know, look, I mean, Paul Silas got Stephen Silas into the NBA. Um, he uh, hired him. Now, Paul, or I'm sorry, Stephen's first job in the league was actually working with the Retired Players Association. And <clears throat> it's funny, he told me, he said, yeah, everyone thought my father got me that job, but it was actually because there, there's a brown guy <laughs> running, running the thing. So I'm like, so it was Ivy league nepotism, not parental nepotism. He laughed. Um, but so Paul Silas was coaching, I believe, and I can't remember which iteration of the Charlotte franchise this was, but, um, got him first got him in the door as an advanced scout, which is, you know, you're on the road 350 days out of the year. You're seeing hundreds of basketball games. And that's where Paul, that's where Steven sort of, you know, earned his spurs in the league. And then an, an assistant job opened up and people around Paul said, hey, you should hire Steven. And he said, I don't know if that's a good idea. And people around Steven said, you've got to take this job. He's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be in this situation where, you know, I've always been Paul Silas's son that like, you know, I'm just sort of like tagging along for the ride. But they eventually decided that this was just for the best. And they were together for a very long time. So I think a lot of what Paul Silas knows and has learned over the years has obviously filtered its way down to Steven, but don't forget Paul Silas played for Lenny Wilkins. Paul Silas um, was an assistant coach uh, under Pat Riley. You know, I mean, this goes, these, these webs are generational that have influenced Steven Silas's career. If you look at like Steve Clifford, Steve Clifford is from the Van Gundy coaching tree all the way back to the original Jeff Van Gundy's father coaching tree. And that's descended from Pat. And so I think, you know, the Pat Riley influence as much as anything probably has, has, a, has a big, big, you know, uh, influence on Steven, but it, not in terms of temperament. He is like, like we were saying earlier, he's very relaxed. And, you know, Paul Silas was, he didn't put up with any nonsense, right? Steven doesn't either, but Steven does it in a very interesting way. Steven does it in a way that is more, I expect a lot out of you. And if you disappoint me, I'm going to be disappointed. Like it's almost like a dad kind of thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and his players respond to that. They do. Yeah. In this article, you sat down with him, you know, through his preparations for the one game. Um, what did his, his process, his approach to that process tell you about who he is as a coach and, and how did that sort of mentality that you just described or that demeanor, how did that work its way into his process as well? Yeah, he's very thorough. Um, you know, very detailed. And he's, I mean, the way that the way the Hornets work uh, for their advanced scouts <clears throat> for the coaches scouts, I'm sorry, is that he'll watch five games and make his notes. Now, before he even gets there, he's got all this information and data and stuff. And we were watching stuff and we were, he was letting me watch the film with him. It was great, but stuff was happening. And he was like, Oh yeah, that's this, that or the other. And it, he's seen everything a hundred times. So he's very thorough, very detailed, but a lot of people like that are just like, yeah, I got it. Well, it doesn't matter if he gets it. It matters that his players get it. 
And, you know, it matters that the other coaches get it. It matters that everybody is on the same page together. And how do you then teach, how do you filter that information down to the coaches and then filter it down and teach it to the players? And that's really where he's coming from with that. I mean, you know, he can watch a game and within 10 position, 10 possessions can you know, diagram half the half another team's playbook, but that's not really that interesting. It's can you get your guys to respond in the moment to things that are happening on the court? That's the job for him. And that's, you know, that's, that's what he does. Yeah. So much of this is sort of transferring messages or transferring information to these players and hoping that they take that and then run with it and, and see it before it happens or see it as it's happening. And you did a great job in this article of, of describing the process that assistant coaches go through with their individual player sets, which I think is something that would surprise a lot of readers that these assistant coaches actually have groups of players that they are responsible for. Who were Steven's players and what was his relationship to them? Yeah, this is my favorite part of the story, actually, the reporting, was talking to those guys and talking to Steven about his guys. So he has four guys. Uh, they're wings. Michael Kidd Gilchrist, Jeremy Lamb, Trevion Graham, and Malik Monk. All different levels, all different um, roles on the team. None of those guys are necessarily old, but, you know, I mean, MKG is kind of like, you know, I mean, he's a, he's a, how old is MKG? Was it 25 or something like that? But like, he's, he's like a 35 year old. He's a grown up, shall we say. He's a veteran for sure. Thank you. And, you know, MKG is very well established. So Steven's relationship with MKG, which has gone on since, since MKG got in the league is very much tailored toward MKG's personality, which is, um, laid back is the wrong word, but he doesn't need a lot of information. He's already got it. Mm -hmm. He just needs a little bit of reinforcement. Jeremy Lamb, on the other hand, Jeremy Lamb is more of a long-term project that's really borne out in the last, this year, especially. He just needs some focus and direction. Steven has helped him with his focus and direction. And he's starting to emerge as a player. Malik Monk is all the way on the other end of the spectrum. Malik Monk needs everything told to him. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard for a 19-year-old, as Steven said, you know, this is unlike anything he's ever seen before in basketball, the NBA, which I think a lot of people don't quite grasp about the league is that it's not like college and it's nothing like high school. It's not like the grassroots at all. The, the defenses they play in the NBA and the shot clock and the sets they run are very, very, very different than what you get in, in college, as well as the pace of the game and the athleticism and the speed and the physicality and all that kind of stuff. Very different. So, you know, Steven's job with MKG is much different than his job with Malik Monk. And somehow he's got to, you know, teach them each in their way, not in Steven's way necessarily, which, you know, I think is kind of the defining trait of the Steve Clifford approach. And Steven certainly uh, embodies that. And Malik Monk uh, did a great job of pointing out sort of the the demeanor difference between Steve Clifford and and Steve and Silas one one kind of is the mad dad and one and, and Clifford and one is the as you as you pointed out sort of the the disappointed dad uh, do you see that a lot in your experience as a as a national NBA guy that that coaches will will find associate head coaches or or assistants that complement their style of coaching I think you see a lot of different things and I think what you see specifically with Charlotte is a head coach in Steve Clifford who is very comfortable in his abilities. And so he wants to surround himself with people who can help their process. I've seen coaches who want to surround themselves with yes men and lackeys to help them get along. Most of those guys don't last very long. Hmm. You know, I mean, you look at like Steve Kerr and 
Steven Silas was up for, it didn't make the piece, but Steve, Steven Silas was up for that lead assistant job on Steve Kerr's bench that went to Mike Brown. And the reason it went to Mike Brown was they needed a um, established coach who had head coaching experience in the event that Steve Kerr's back gave out, which he did during the playoffs. And Mike Brown was able to slide in. That's a big time job. That's about the, the 31st most important job in NBA coaching after the head coaching jobs. Right? Yeah. If you look at Steve Kerr's staff, you know, it's young in some ways it's old in others. It's a really nice blend. I think you see a lot more of that throughout the NBA teams. Teams are investing a lot more in their coaching staff, but you still see every now and again, you see, you see guys surrounded by, um, people who are there to make their boss look good. Mm. And the Hornets are not like that. The Hornets are very much, you know, like let's get some good coaches in here and let's trust them and empower them to do what they need to do because the head man's got confidence in his abilities. That's all it comes down to. Yeah. And, and I think that's been borne out over the past uh, a couple of games when, when, uh, when Steven Silas has had a chance to speak to the media, he's talked about how he's gone to Clifford for, you know, advice or for, you know, to discuss the, the matchup. And it, and it seems like Clifford is very comfortable saying, you got this. Like, this is, you know, this is why I uh, trusted in you as an associate head coach. This is, this is your, this is your ship now for, for now. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I think there's, it was interesting when I print, when I pitched this story to the, to the Hornets um, media relations staff are great. You know, I, I did it with the understanding that a lot of head coaches don't let their assistant coaches talk. They don't let they don't let them have any of the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what they'll say is, well, we're a team with one voice. We're, we're a one voice organization. Right. What they really mean is we don't want the assistant coach to get any any shine. We don't want him to get any right. that will detract from my star. Yeah. You know, and it's like, OK, I guess so. You know, the Hornets were pretty were pretty open to the idea as they're open to a lot of things. They're great PR staff. And, you know, it was like basically like we just got to run it by Cliff. And I talked to Steve and Steve was into it. And Cliff Cliff was like, no problem. Come on down. And I talked to him and I said, hey, thanks for this. He's like, come on, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and that's Cliff. He's like, yeah. He's like, I'm not going to stop you from this. This is great. <clears throat> this is not a distraction. Like I was around them for like 24 hours. Like this is not a distraction. This is fine. And so I, again, this all goes back to this idea that, you know, Steven Silas knows who he is and knows what he is about. And that's why he's valuable to Steve Clifford's staff because Steve Clifford doesn't need a bunch of yes men. Right. And so, you know, it's understandable though, for the assistant to say, this is not my job. This is Steve Clifford's job. I'm not trying to steal it. Yeah. I'm not trying to take it. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. That is basically an assistant coach credo. And so, you know, I think it's important that Steve says to Steven, like, take it. It's yours right now. Yeah. What you need to do in order to win these games. Because there's a, there's a credo and there's a code in all this. There's an omerta code amongst coaches. Uh, you touched on this a little bit at the beginning of our interview, but we'll close with this. Uh, any thoughts on what Hornets fans should expect from their team moving forward under a coach Steven Silas if Steve Clifford's absence extends uh, into multiple weeks? Well, I mean, you know this better than I do. Like, they got to start winning some games. And, like, I still think they're a playoff team based on what they have on the, on the roster. Um, but they can't let themselves get too far behind because the East is a little bit better than we think. So they, this is a really important stretch for them and they got to win some games. I, you know, I wouldn't expect drastic changes. I wouldn't expect, you know, 
stylistic or tactical changes or anything like that, but they have to find the level of consistency that has so far eluded them this season. And they got to start winning some games, especially at home. So, you know, this is a, this is a really big stretch for them and it's a tough spot, frankly, for Steven Silas. It's always tough to be the interim guy, but it is going to be tough because like, this is not like a late March. We got a couple weeks to get things together before the playoffs start. This is like go time right now. So, yeah, win games. That's what he's got to do. You are listening to the Locked On Hornets podcast. David. Hey, the show's barely been on. How are these injuries going to affect the Hornets' ability to beat the Miami Heat? I'm going to go get some more buttermilk while you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> get more Hornets analysis on LockedOnHornets.com. So, David, what now? Okay, the Hornets still have two-thirds of the season left. The team owner is visiting them in the locker room. Uh, they've uh, they've got a – apparently it was like a fact-finding mission, Michael Jordan yeah, just talking to the team. Yeah, trying to take their temperature, exactly. Uh, fans are extremely frustrated with the direction of the franchise. The mentions on the Locked On Hornets account are filled with questions about trade values, desires to see Malik Monk more, a general attitude, I think, it feels like, of capitulation, of giving up, of starting over. Yeah. Where is your head right now? I mean, I'm pretty close to there, Doug. <laughs> Honestly, it's hard not to be. You know, we had Steve Bob on, of course, uh, on Friday. And we went around that a little bit um, and, and it's hard not to lean towards that sentiment, but man, this is <laughs> every time we do this and I feel like I'm back here again, cause we've done the last three years, you look at the standings and as bad as it is, they are three games <laughs> out of eighth place. And look, I know it's early and, and other teams are going to falter and do things. It just feels like this is a repetitive thing um, with this team, Doug, it, it, like the ceiling, you know, you and I always talk about, totally healthy their ceiling should be you know four five six right getting up into that uh threatening for for a home court uh playoff series but they're back here again early on in the season and it's hard not to get really down about this because the level of play lately just watching these games excuse me is is brutal um so i I get it with for the fans I, i don't think you know that mj visit to the locker room without the coaches um just talking to those players, I think I'm, I'm glad we finally heard something from him. I didn't know what it would be. If I didn't think it would be like a statement or anything, that's not really what he does, but there's obviously concern there too. So they're trying to figure some things out until they're totally out of it, as has been their nature. I don't think there's, you know, a, a wholesale uh, selling off of players, certainly, but I, I do think there's going to be pressure from somewhere to make changes through trades. We are in uncharted territory since professional basketball returned to Charlotte, a team that was built to win that is supposed to win, not winning, right? We've seen teams that were not supposed to win, not win. We saw that a lot in the Bobcats era. We've seen teams that were not supposed to win, exceed expectations and win. But we're now in a second season of a team not living up to the expectations that the national media had for them, the the expectations that the owner of the team had for them. And I think anything is possible at this point. And that's not a point that I was ready to concede maybe before these last couple of weeks. But what I think should happen and what I think will happen are still pretty far apart in my mind. I'm not sure that even 
at their healthiest and luckiest that this experiment has much of a chance of reaching into the second round, much less yeah. competing in it. I, I'm not sure that the the bet on the core of Kemba, Batum, Walker, or excuse me, of uh, Williams and Zeller is going to work. I'm also not certain that the Hornets can get anything of value, present or future, for this aging, hurting, underperforming group. And that includes Kimba Walker, who I think, look, I, I, I think Kimba Walker has been the absolute best uh, player in franchise history. And what he's done with his game and his improvements in his game over the last couple of seasons is beyond amazing. But I also think that we tend to overvalue him locally because of all that he's done with this franchise. I'm not certain he would bring more than a late lottery or late first round pick in a trade scenario, plus a few you know salary filling role players. I'm not sure that he's not going to get the haul that a, that even. I mean, we've seen Jimmy Butler and Paul George go for peanuts. Uh-huh. It's it's it's. I just don't think the mar- Like I, I think people think that Kimball Walker would bring back multiple picks and different things, and no. it's it's just. I don't think so. I don't think so either. I don't think the market is there for that kind of deal. But I also don't believe that the leadership of this franchise wants to host the All Star Weekend in Charlotte with a franchise. That's- that is built to lose. I mean, these are just yeah. these are just realities. Uh, so I don't think an immediate teardown is on the table, whether any of us like it or not. I don't think that it's even plausible. But my question, David, is there a middle ground where they can start to explore ways to be more financially flexible next season as they get healthy this season? I think they're going to be, there's going to, I think there is, um, they, they do have some other assets, I guess, you know, some younger guys, they, they could look to move, but it's, it's just tough. I mean, you never know what's going to happen when those trade calls start going. I mean, we talk about the trades we hear about all the time. I mean, there's, there's, you know, tens of thousands or whatever of, of ones we don't hear about. Right. So it, it's hard to speculate on what, what could or could not be out there, but, I think that's going to be the immediate move to me. That's the one. I mean, you you start talking about trading Kimba or you trade Kimba, and then, then that signals it's a complete rebuild there. Like everything else falls after that. But, you know, I think if you try and move out some of these other guys to just get some influx of, you know, more whether it's more two-way players, three and D players, guys that fit better when you watch a, an NBA game today that can guard multiple people, do different things on offense, like you mentioned earlier, create their own shot get some things going on offense. I, I mean, it's just hard to see right now because we talk about the value of these players all the time and it's tough to come up with something that's going to really give you a shot in the arm, uh, you know, coming back for a lot of these guys. Yeah, and frankly, I mean, they're here because they've dra- they've either drafted guys yeah. who had physical gifts that lacked certain skills that are necessary in the modern NBA or they drafted players with a lot of skills that had no ability to be a, a physical problem for teams either on the defensive end or, or rebounding or, or just, you know, with their ability to create offense. Uh, so, you know, the roster construction, I think, a, a big part of, of why they're here. And so I think there's a question about, you know, how, how they proceed in the future and who they proceed with in terms of who's who's captaining this ship from the front office. I think those are legitimate you, questions to ask. Yeah, and what are you trying to get back? I mean, because right now it's like the teams that are having quicker rebuilds, right, they're getting those assets in the form of mostly draft picks, high draft picks, right? 
I mean, that's what's really valued, it seems, these but, days. But if so. you look at like Atlanta and Phoenix are the most recent examples that I can think of of teams that have torn it all down. Uh, yeah. and, and Brooklyn is an exception because they had they had wasted all of their assets. I mean, they had nothing to move. And but but Phoenix and, and Atlanta had pieces and and were in situations where they like with Paul Millsap where they could let Paul Millsap go. That, the, the Hornets have so much money locked up in the future that that really their only options for gaining financial flexibility is to find willing trade partners who would give them nothing in return, essentially, to get this money off of the book. So none of the answers are easy uh, moving forward, David. Uh, but you know, I, I think that the Hornets have to be concentrated. That they're right now the players on the court that are trying to win basketball games because they are they are professional competitors. Like that's what they do. They don't think yeah. about draft picks or any of that. You know what they have, they're in a crisis of confidence. And, oh. and and they have to find some way to dig out a victory either against you know Oklahoma City uh, tonight or or w- one of these really tough matchups. I don't think it's going to happen against Houston. They've got Miami coming back home on Friday. I mean something's got to give, and they they've got to find something in themselves uh, before you know because look, Michael Jordan's going to visit the locker room and take the temperature, you know, and and do that kind of thing now, but but eventually some kind of decision is going to have to be made on the future of this franchise and uh you know, it's not looking in a very positive direction right now. No, and of course, you know, Steve Clifford, we don't know what's going on there. He he continues to be out. That can't be, you know, understated, I think, the effect that that may have on just the overall uh, confidence moving forward of the team. I mean, he is the coach. You see some of those things slipping and Silas is, you know, respected around the league and, and, and knows what he's doing, but it's just, it's just different when you have a, a, a not your head guy out there, um, but the injuries and then you couple on the, the Clipper thing, it, it's man, it snowballed really fast, Doug, because you lost Kaminsky and Zeller and then Batum and Lamb are iffy. So it's like, I mean, that is your core. I mean, you, you, you know, you take Kim out of there and, and, and Dwight and it's, those are key cogs, obviously. So uh, it's, it's hard to see them, you know, being able to rebound. You're going to have to get performances from guys that you, that you haven't, namely some young rookies. Um, so it's, you know, we're searching for answers here. I'm sure they are too. Maybe they go on the road against a thunder team that's trying to figure itself out the problem i see with that is they still (laughs) they've got three superstars right they may not be playing like it night in and night out um, and maybe they're not even considered superstars across the board at this stage in, in, in some of their careers but that's still a lot of talent and when you take an ailing hornets team in there that's already hurting and missing guys um we've seen how they struggle against guys who just have just teams who have go-to guys, you know, and can go out there and make shots. And OKC has three of those. All right. I'll drop the Flannery piece somewhere in there. Um, <coughs> all right, David, we have a listener question on Twitter. You can submit your questions on Twitter at locked on Hornets or email them to a buzz buzz at locked on Hornets.com. Daniel writes in, would love to see some numbers for MKG catch and shoot versus MKG dribble pull up. I can't understand why he insists on the dribble pull-up. has to be one of the least efficient shots that the Hornets regularly take. All right, I, I've got you, Daniel, on, on this. I pulled up some stats from Synergy. And uh, on catch-and-shoot, 
Michael K. Gilchrist is shooting 11 of 26. That's 42% from the field. That's a point per possession of 0.846. That is below average, ranking 21% on his dribble jump shot. Relative to the rest of the league, it's average, uh, but it, he's shooting 37.8%, so a lower field goal percentage on those dribble pull-ups, 14 of 37 from the field, 0.75 points per possession. So neither very good. It started out well. He was he was in a groove early after coming back from his absence, uh, but uh, that has trailed off and indeed uh, has been one of the Hornets' problems, ability to space the floor. And if you're going to exclusively take mid-range jump shots, which that's what Michael K. Gilchrist has been taking, a lot of jump shots, in fact. I mean, he's not cutting as much. Uh, he's he's getting a lot of his buckets either with that spot-up shot or in transition. But if you're only going to do that, then you have to do it at a rate that we've seen DeMar DeRozan do it. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be inefficient offensively, and unfortunately, uh, we've seen that from Michael K. Gilchrist. That offense uh, has not been very good. Yeah, you're right. It did start to look more positive early in the season, but that's one of the big problems. I mean, if you've got MKG shooting important shots down the stretch, that's an issue because as, as hard as he's worked and as close as he's come to being competent on the offensive end, it's tough to ask him to you know hit any shots, much less ones that matter in tight games, and that's that's uh you know that's a sign pointing to something very very wrong with this offense. All right, so the Hornets take on the Oklahoma City Thunder tonight on the road. Uh, the Thunder, a team that plays better, like the Hornets, play better at home than on the road. Uh, they're coming off a win. They but at the same time, they're they're trying to figure some things out too. Uh, uh, David, yeah. they are out of the Western Conference playoff picture right now. They've got three stars in Russell Westbrook, Carmelo Anthony, and Paul George, but haven't figured out exactly uh, how to groove with those three guys in a way offensively that's going to allow them to win basketball games. Uh, Russ Westbrook seems sort of content uh, you know, to either take the offense on himself early or give it to Carmelo or give it to Paul and then just sort of stand out of the way. They haven't figured out a really a way to get these guys all moving at the same time. And then you've got Paul George injured but possibly making a comeback uh, tonight to play against the Hornets. Uh, what, what, what are you seeing from this Oklahoma City team and what are the, what are the opportunities for the Hornets uh, in this one if they can get some guys healthy? Right. I mean, that's the biggest thing, Doug. Like, it, it really comes down to how the Hornets are are playing, and they can't get anything to go right right now. I mean, that's what I was just saying before. And when these type of games come up, you've got legit superstars on the other end. That's where the Hornets, even when they're playing at their best, if they're in tight games, typically come up short because the other team has multiple players or the best player on the floor that's able to hit shots down the stretch. And OKC, like I said, even if they're not playing that way right now, they still have guys that are used to taking shots that have been the man and and Carmelo and Paul George and certainly uh, Westbrook. So even if things are going horrible, and I think like when you look at these two teams, (laughs) neither are where they want to be. And so if everything else is being equal, like if everything else is bad, (laughs) you lean back on just individual talent and guys facing off against one another and I mean, it's tough not to be able to say that the Thunder having a huge advantage in that in that uh, in that area. You know, just individual talent. 
Yeah, according to Cleaning the Glass, uh, Russ Westbrook, Paul George, Carmelo Anthony, all under 50th percentile in terms of points per shot attempt. So they're all uh, struggling uh, on the offensive end as they look. It's sort of a, uh, okay, I'll go and then you go and then I'll go and then yeah. you go thing. They haven't really figured out uh, how to how to make those three pieces work together instead of just work with, you know, just work for it. They haven't worked. They're not working for each other. They're working with each other. And, and that's been an issue for Oklahoma City. So, yeah, they're not moving the ball. You know, they're 25th in assists in the league. So, like, <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what kind of a game this is going to be, man. Uh, it could be it could be a grinded out. It, it could be ugly sprinkled in with, you know, some flashes of excitement from Russ and Kimba and stuff. But at home, like you mentioned, they're nine and three at home scoring about 105 points a game. Uh, and and what the Hornets have been able to do lately, that's not that's probably not going to cut it. Yeah, one uh, of the, it, one of the things that's been frustrating, David, watching this is that they're not getting blown out. You know, they're staying competitive in 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 a lot of these games against good competition and bad competition, uh, but they just can't. They don't have that extra something nah. that that teams need a, an ability to knock down a big shot. Uh, to get a stop, I mean, their pick and roll defense falls apart late in games. They're just struggling right now to figure out what it's going to take to win a basketball game, and that's why I don't think that you can exclusively point to injuries as what ails this team because they're they're managing to stay competitive through the injuries. They just haven't figured out a way to win basketball games. So um, that's sort of this is this has been our state of the Hornets podcast. You know, just trying to figure out where this team is and, and where they could possibly go. Hopefully, we answered uh, some of your questions. Continue to comment to us uh, on Twitter at Locked On Hornets, and we'll discuss as the week continues. We'll be back tomorrow with a recap of tonight's game, and we'll start to preview when, Wednesday night's matchup uh, in Houston. Thanks so much for listening to Locked On Hornets. Visit lockedonhornets.com for more. For David, I'm Doug saying, Go Hornets, go America. Let's swarm Charlotte.